Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 24. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lindsay Albenberg. She is an osteopathic physician from the Center for Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She is an attending physician in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. She completed her medical school training at the Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences in Kansas City, Missouri. She completed her residency in pediatrics in the University of Missouri School of Medicine, Children's Mercy Hospitals, and was the chief resident there as well. Her fellowship took her to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where she currently remains today. She has published in many of the best peer-reviewed journals for gastroenterology, including gastroenterology and inflammatory bowel diseases. She is a teacher primarily, as is shown by her awards and honors, receiving the Fellows Teaching Award, as well as uh, resident teaching awards for outstanding uh, ability. Her work or her research agenda specifically focuses on the impact of the gut microbiome in pediatric health and disease. She tends to look at things from a broader view, sort of the whole patient view, which is clearly something that interests me tremendously. Her understanding of the microbiome and how antecedent upstream risks can affect the microbiome and therefore affect the GI tract, leading to inflammatory bowel diseases and other conditions related to inflammation, is a critical part of the research agenda that we as a society need to pay attention to because these diseases are causing significant morbidity and mortality in humans. Her passion for the GI tract is quite amazing. As we all know, its responsibility of digestion and absorption of food is the most important thing that has historically been discussed. But now, that is really flipping into a new whole world of understanding the connection between the GI tract and the nervous system and the brain and how bacteria affect all of the functions that occur in the human body, even the production of vitamins and minerals in, in uh, our system and how the GI tract is also involved with the microbiome in helping our brain function and our hormones. And there's so much more to be learned. And Dr. Albenberg is somebody who really loves this space and really wants to discuss it. And so therefore, we're going to get into a lot of these issues today, how nutrition plays a part in this. She has a specific diet that she recommends for children, how uh, other risk factors upstream can have downstream effects that therefore later turn into disease and problems. What I also find fascinating about Dr. Albenberg and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is that they have a program called the Immune Dysregulation Program. She works with Ed Barron's and many other physicians in different disciplines, including hematology, oncology, rheumatology, uh, genetics, gastroenterology, uh, allergy, and all of these physicians get together to discuss suspected immune disorders and, you know, what undiagnosed conditions could be immune-related. And they put a whole team of folks together to sort of 
break these issues down to come up with a better answer as to what's actually going on. And this is where medicine should be going nationally. We should be looking at, you know, the whole patient from a multi-system level, immune, neurological, uh, microbiome, uh, nutritional, uh, you know, any system that could be involved in disease onset is where we should be looking. And this group is starting to do that. And so with that uh, backdrop of understanding and Dr. Albenberg being an excellent guest to look into this space, let's begin the discussion with Dr. Lindsay Albenberg. Well, good morning, Lindsay. I'm so grateful to have you here on the Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. Uh, you are following in the footsteps of some other folks who are going to be discussing the microbiome, but you specifically come uh, loaded with information about children in specific. I know you do a lot of work in the inflammatory bowel disease space, but we're going to try and take this from a little bit of a 30,000 foot view to begin with and sort of dial it down uh, over the next hour or so into what looks like a little more microscopic view of how things are going wrong. So good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start um, with this nice nature article uh, Dr. Veldwin um, wrote. I'm going to just read a little quote to kick you off onto this. So it says, quote, the agricultural revolution approximately 10,000 years ago and the industrial revolution roughly 200 years ago led to dramatic changes in our environment, lifestyle, and our diet. The post-agricultural diet is particularly rich in carbohydrates, especially grains. Although these changes have been hugely beneficial for the expansion of our species, the adaptation of our genome does not seem to have been synchronized with these changes, as suggested by the high prevalence of gluten intolerance in modern humans. The post-industrial diet of the developed world is even higher in carbohydrates, and particularly in processed refined grains and saturated fats, and is dominated by food that has been processed, modified, stored, and transported great distances with subsequent losses in vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals. These changes have resulted in a disconnection between our environment and our genome, which has not evolved at a sufficient rate or had the opportunity to adapt as most symptoms of Western diet occur after the reproductive age. They manifest as a reduction in the quality of life with the increased incidence of chronic diseases such as cancer, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. All of these conditions share elements of low-grade inflammation, and they could be largely prevented by change. End quote. So that's sort of, for me, emblematic of where I want to go with this talk. I know you know this stuff backwards and forwards. So help parents and clinicians understand, you know, the diet immune connection. What's going on here? Let's talk about immune regulation in the broad sense and sort of give us an overview and then go as deep as you want. Sure. Yeah, that was um, an amazing introduction. So yeah, you know, so my expertise is within the GI tract and immune mediated GI disease. And we know that diet really plays a critical role in shaping the composition of the gut microbiome. And I think you have discussed the microbiome before. And so many of you may be aware, but the microbiome is essentially the collection of microbes and their genes that live within us. And the gut microbiome are the collection of microbes and their genes that live within our GI tract. And there is a, a massive body of literature at this point that shows that diet is one of the major environmental factors that 
really shapes the composition of the gut microbiome. We started this at, at CHOP and at Penn um, years ago where we did an inpatient feeding experiment where we had patients in our inpatient research unit. Um, so they stayed with us for 10 days and we randomized them to receive two very different diets and, and both were sort of extreme diets that would be different from a, a typical standard American diet. And we collected stool samples every day and we sequenced the microbiome. And within just 24 hours of changing the diet, we saw really significant changes in the gut microbial community and in all of the individuals who participated in the study. And I think this is important, and this link between diet and the microbiome is important because the microbes that live within our GI tract really play a critical role in educating our mucosal immune system. So within our GI tract is this really massive immune organ. Um, and we know that my career started out in the lab and I did a lot of work with germ-free animals. And so essentially germ-free animals are animals that are born and raised in germ-free environments in the lab and they are not exposed to microbes and it allows us to sort of introduce microbes and really sort of target the type of studies and analyses that we're doing. And animals who are born in germ-free environments have really massive abnormalities in their immune function. So including systemic T-cell deficiencies and really all sorts of immune abnormalities occur. And so it's thought that imbalances in our gut microbial uh, community and these imbalances and these sort of microbiome immunity interactions leads to disease through mechanisms that aren't yet totally defined, but it's thought that these imbalances can occur when there's dysbiosis or an altered composition of the gut flora. And there are many important environmental factors that have been associated with dysbiosis. Diet is certainly a major one. Um, antibiotics, particularly antibiotics early in life, um, geography and other demographic factors. But again, we know that um, diet is important in shaping the composition of the gut microbiome. And, you know, my interest is in inflammatory bowel disease, which um, are, are quite common, unfortunately. And they, this leads to inflammation of the GI tract, just of the colon and ulcerative colitis and anywhere in the GI tract in Crohn's disease. And the inflammation can cause abdominal pain, diarrhea, rectal bleeding, poor quality of life. There's significant morbidity associated with these diseases. And we know that patients with inflammatory bowel disease have an altered composition of the gut flora. We know that genes contribute just a modest amount to, to disease susceptibility and IBD, similar to in other immune-mediated diseases. And now we're starting to see several epidemiologic studies that are linking diet with the development of inflammatory bowel disease. So for example, you're more likely to 
develop IBD if you have a diet that's high in animal fat and protein and low in fiber. Um, and it seems like, you know, every month at this point, a study comes out again, making this link between diet and the development of IBD. Um, and so there's, you know, definitely more work to be done in this area. Um, you know, for example, I think one of my, one of my favorite papers that I talk about a lot, um, looked at the role of dietary emulsifiers in inflammation in an animal model and emulsifiers are like ubiquitous in processed foods. They keep fats in suspension and they make foods have a better texture and emulsifiers are frequently the ingredients that are difficult to pronounce when you look at ingredient lists uh, of foods in the grocery store. They're found on the sort of inside aisles of the, gro the grocery store. So things that come in a package or a box. And um, there was one particular study where they gave animals emulsifiers at concentrations that would be typical of human consumption. So not like mega lab doses. And they saw a thinning of the mucus layer that sort of lines and protects our GI tracts. And the bacteria were allowed then to be closer to the cells that line our GI tracts. Um, there was also an abnormal composition of the gut bacteria in these animals that received emulsifiers and inflammation was more likely. So we're starting to make, we have these epidemiologic associations. We are starting to make associations between specific foods and inflammation in animal models. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is that we know that in certain patients with inflammatory bowel disease, we can actually treat their disease with diet. And so we're making those types of links as well and working hard to sort of put it all together. Um, one other comment that I'll make on this is that um, timing of environmental exposures seems pretty important. So um, we are born with uh, a microbiome that we can talk about, you know, sort of where it comes from, but um, we are exposed to a lot of different things after birth as babies that lead to the development of our microbiome. And our microbiome is like pretty chaotic. It's changing all the time within the first three years of life. And then starting in the toddler years, um, the microbiome becomes more stable and it looks pretty similar to this sort of like stable adult microbiome. That's, um, somewhat more difficult to perturb, um, but not impossible. And so there have also been some studies that have linked antibiotics early in life during this sort of like critical window to the development of inflammatory bowel disease. And so um, I think that's also an important point is that it, it might not just be these environmental factors, but also timing of these environmental factors, which is why um, you know, I know in, in pediatrics, we're just always trying to hammer home the importance of, of diet and nutrition early on in life. Yeah. Let me pause you there because I think yeah. that's a really important point. And you've laid out a nice picture of where this is starting and going. So let's say you have a baby and this has been very um, interesting in my career now over the last 22 years where 
you have a newborn, just comes out of the womb, looks perfectly healthy, everything's great. And within two weeks starts to have these symptoms that we call colic. Mm-hmm. So the baby all of a sudden is fussy, starts getting this dry rash, what we call eczema, their stools start to turn green. Um, they are more congested and they're starting to go through this period of something's not normal. And when I was a, um, a junior resident at, at University of Virginia, we sort of didn't know what this really was. And we said it was a gut brain interface issue. We didn't know. And then lo and behold, now fast forward, we understand this is a milk intolerance and these kids are not tolerating milk protein, specifically something called casein. So when we remove the casein protein from these children, we put them on a different formula, sometimes soy works, but most often they end up on a hydrolyzed formula, removing those proteins, they do better. But what I find really interesting has been over the last uh, 10, 15 years is a lot of these children end up going back on dairy sometime in the first six to 12 months of life. And the GI symptoms tend to be a little bit better, but then they start getting this chronic congestion, uh, chronic constipation, and they end up with ear infections repeatedly. So multiple, multiple times we see these children on antibiotics over, over a course of two years. I've had, I can't tell you how many times I can count a child having 10 antibiotic courses before their third birthday. Yep. So I look at this and I say, okay, what's the mechanism? If you were going to sit here and explain in layman's terms to a mother or a father, what's really going on here? So you have a milk protein intolerance, you have the inflammation related to the immune system overreacting to the cow protein that it doesn't like. And then the antibiotic, level. What, what's really going on microbially and immunologically there? Yeah, I mean, I think we uh, still a lot of this remains to be determined. And it's interesting, like I really, even though there's, as you said, more literature, I think we still don't really know exactly what colic is. And we have a study that we're doing now where we're enrolling babies and collecting stool samples from the time of birth. And we're trying to link alterations in the micro the microbiome or the gut microbial metabolites Um and uh, functional, what we call functional GI disorders, which means like there's something wrong with the way the GI tract is functioning, but we can't find anything with our current technology that's you know physically wrong with the GI tract. So, I mean, I think this is important from a GI perspective. What I think is so fascinating about the GI tract is that our barrier between self and non-self is a single layer of epithelial cells that lines the gut and the interactions that are occurring between this barrier and our gut mucosal immune system are, are supposed to be tightly regulated so that we can correctly discriminate between bugs that are supposed to be there and you know, harmless food antigens and then pathogens and the toxins that they produce. And um, we're really like meant to, to compartmentalize what's in the lumen of our GI tract and what is in the sort of more inner compartments of our body. And so in addition to this single layer of epithelial cells, there is a mucus layer, which I mentioned that is meant to shields and compartmentalize. There are what we call tight junction proteins, which are sort of between the epithelial cells and fortify the barrier. And we know now that those can be upregulated by like certain microbial signals. So if those are not there or they're 
um, you know, if the wrong bugs are there, potentially, this could be affected. We know that there are antimicrobial peptides, proteins that um, are meant to help us get rid of bugs that aren't supposed to be there that are released from um, our GI tract epithelium. We have dendritic cells, which are part of our immune system, which sort of like sample and they're, they're kind of constantly sampling and trying, taking little samples and trying to figure out, okay, like you're supposed to be there. You're good. You're not supposed to be there. Let's get you. There's this constant crosstalk that's going on. And if any of this goes wrong, especially like when we think about inflammatory bowel disease, we think in a genetically susceptible individual, but, um, you know, I, I suppose even in, in a, a baby where there's no identified issue from a genetics perspective, inflammation can occur. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that this sort of tightly regulated process, um, probably goes wrong more often than we know it. And, you know, I see patients in my, I have an, also an integrative gastroenterology clinic, which I love. And I get to spend more time talking to patients about environment. And so frequently I see patients who have had, who have chronic belly aches, um, chronic gas and bloating, and they've had hundreds of thousands of dollars of relatively invasive testing. And sometimes they've seen one, two, three gastroenterologists before they see me. And, and then you start talking and you realize that they're like your patient. They had 10 antibiotics as the, as a toddler because of chronic ear infections, or, um, you know, there's tons of sugar in the diet. There's almost no fiber in the diet. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's an interesting point. I think the, the little babies, as I said, I mean, colic and, and functional GI disorders or what we consider to be functional GI disorders in the little ones, I think we don't totally understand. And we're studying that now, but I think there are these clear associations between diet and our mucosal immune system. And I think there are frequently times when something goes wrong. Yeah. So you touched um, on a couple of things there that I want to keep keep digging a little deeper on. So the, the, the mucus layer, that's so yeah. critically important to be that barrier between the bacteria, which mostly are friends, right? So when we talk about the microbiome for a parent's perspective, the vast majority of the bacteria that exist within our GI lumen are friends of ours. There are, some, there are some in there that are pathologic, but they tend to be suppressed by the friends most of the time. The classic example I like to explain to parents is when you get a yeast infection, well, that tends to follow antibiotic use in a female or even in a baby. If they get a big yeast overgrowth, it's because you've suppressed the good guys, the good bacteria, and yep. some of these yeast will take space. So when we think about that, this mucus layer sitting there between it, what's predominantly making that mucus layer and what food source specifically is driving that help? Yeah, so um, we are, so we're, we're making the mucus layer, but the, fi but fiber is fortifying the mucus layer. So there have been some really interesting 
studies that have shown that um, without fiber in our diet, that the mucus layer is a lot thinner. And that is potentially because you're increasing the abundance of sort of carbo specific bacteria that like to digest carbohydrates that actually can break down the mucus layer. Um, and so there have also been some studies in animal models that a low fiber diet, if you take a bunch of animals and you put one group on, I'm, I'm specifically talking about mice, you put one group on a low fiber diet, one group on a high fiber diet, and then you sprinkle a bacteria that's like commonly a pathogen in mice, the high fiber diet animals seem to be protected. And the low, the diet, the, the group in the low fiber diet, uh, eating the low fiber diet, they are more likely to be infected with pathogens. And so, um, so yeah, so bacteria are critical in maintaining this mucus layer um, and, and fiber is definitely our friend when it comes to fortifying our mucus layer. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I hammer in our clinic to the kids is that we're as a society, so poorly ingesting fiber and as a volume, I know the average I hear is 10, 15 grams a day when we should be North of 70, 80, 90 historical numbers, maybe significantly even higher than that. Yeah. Like almost up to a hundred grams a day in, in like in traditional populations. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. 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 We're nowhere near there. And I know, you know, people are like, well, I'll put fiber in this or fiber in that smoothie. Yeah. That's not the answer. The answer is what did mother nature or God intend us to do with food and eating the right sources right. as, as the whole foods, as I know you'll get into. So let's switch gears a tiny little bit. I want to look at, you know, how does like, let's look at saturated fat specifically. So one of the things in the standard westernized Americanized diet is that we tend to have a lot more animal fats coupled to a low fiber diet, how is saturated fat? Cause I know when I look at some of this research, saturated fat tends to trigger toll-like receptors mm -hmm. and can have an effect on, on upregulating antigen presentation, which in Crohn's would be significantly negative. If you end up presenting more antigen in theory, you could increase autoimmune risk. Is it the saturated fat volume that we have now? Is it the saturated fat volume coupled to the low fiber? Do we know what that answer is? Or is it really just this, we just think this highly processed diet is over triggering our immune system, high inflammation. You know, what's the lay of the land there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we don't really know. I think it's probably the latter. I think it's sort of this overall highly processed. I think it's, um, it's interesting. Like we've done studies where we have, adjusted just the amount of red meat. So we did a study where we sort of randomized patients with inflammatory bowel disease to eat a low red meat diet or a high red meat diet. And that's all we changed. You know, everything else was the same. And we looked at incidents of GI symptoms and um, Crohn's disease flares, and there really didn't seem to be a difference. And so one of our thoughts was, you know, maybe it's not just red meat, maybe it's the, the pattern. And I think my suspicion is that this is the case. And it seems like in, in studies where like one thing is adjusted, 
um, sometimes there are negative results. And I, I think it's more likely to be just this overall pattern of too much saturated fat, not enough fiber, too many processed foods that um, contain these emulsifiers and, you know, added sugars. So I, I do think that it's the pattern. And I guess another example that I'll give is that um, one of the diets that we use to treat Crohn's disease is, is actually called the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. And what we did is this was designed by Ari Levine, who's a pediatric gastroenterologist in Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, and I have used this diet quite a bit in my patients and have done some research along with Ari on this diet. But what Ari and his team did is they looked at all foods that have been associated with inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease um, or foods that have been associated with inflammation in general, and they restricted those from the diet. So this is both in animal models and in humans. So they said, you know, okay, cow's milk, that's a no, gluten, that's a no. And they, they took all of emulsifiers, that's a no. And they designed this diet that essentially excludes anything that has been shown to be pro-inflammatory. Um, and they designed a diet that actually has been shown to be just as effective as formula-based diets, which we've known for many, many decades at this point work for certain patients with Crohn's disease at reducing inflammation. And this whole food-based diet does the same thing. And it's better accepted by patients because they can eat regular food and not just drink formula. Um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable and we've had some good successes. And, and again, I think it's just this overall, I think it's the overall pattern and I'm not convinced that it's any one specific thing. Yeah. And I think sort of, I, I liken that to the canary in the coal mine of the asthmatic patient who gets irritated by perfume or irritated by these aerosolized chemicals. So you and I are getting irritated as well. We just don't have the level of inflammation for right. that irritant to be clinically perceptible. We're still getting irritated. And if you do it enough times, eventually you might have something where the Crohn's IBD patient, I think is the same. They're so sensitive to whatever these micro macromolecules are that they're presenting with massive inflammation where the vast majority of, if not all of us are probably getting irritated as well. We're just not flipping into the full on Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis based on our genetic predispositions or epigenetic predispositions. So I, send, I tend to look at that as what you're laying out, which is what I'm gonna ask you to do next is you're laying out the framework for what all of us should be in general mm -hmm. doing because yeah. again, we don't need to develop Crohn's to decide to eat well, right? We should be right? doing this ad nauseum from the beginning. So, okay, I don't know where you are on this continuum, nor am I gonna ask because you're not supposed to do this, but <laughs> as, a, as a mother, yeah. You, let's say hypothetically, you just had a child. What would you do food-wise? Let's say you breastfeed, which is what I would always recommend everybody. And six months comes along. What would you do from six months on if you were to say, hey, I need to feed my kid to give them the best chance of not developing any immune-related immune disease? And of course, in your case, you're thinking primarily IBD. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I will preface this by saying that as a mom, I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old and I 
can tell you, you know, I don't, I do what I can and it's very hard. Feeding children is hard. And, um, I think that, and you know, this as well from your many years in practice, but feeding kids is hard, but, um, I, we have designed here that I'm happy to, to share with you, but we've designed here what we call a pediatric anti-inflammatory diet pyramid. And it's sort of a hybrid of a Mediterranean style diet and a traditional Japanese style diet. And it's, um, high in fruits and vegetables. Um, there are some lean proteins that we allow and recommend. There are uh, healthy fats, um, whole grains, whole intact grains, preferably. So that's like, you know, brown rice and quinoa and millet and wheat berries and things that haven't been um, ground up into a flour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think this is what I share with my patients, not only my inflammatory bowel disease patients, but all of my patients. So I think, you know, fruits, veggies, lean proteins, whole grains, healthy fats, avoiding as much as possible. I, and I think the other way that I sometimes explain it is like the outside aisle diet. So you're mostly shopping from the outside aisles of the grocery stores. So things that are, um, fresh, um, or fresh frozen and not things that are coming in a box. Um, so, you know, lots of fresh food, which I I think is, um, getting easier. And also, I mean, we have a ways to go for sure. Um, but I think even in families who have financial struggles, you know, fresh frozen. I think there are, there are ways that, that this can be done where you're not relying on things that come out of a box or things that you buy, um, in a drive-thru. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's, yeah, that's what I try to preach. Um, and I think you have to meet families where they're at. And I think small changes are important changes and, and we, share the anti-inflammatory diet with our patients. And we work on very small goals because I think anything is helpful and it probably doesn't take a lot to, to shift the composition of the microbiome, especially in little kids where, you know, there's so much variability and, and bouncing around and instability. Yeah. And and I'd love to get that pyramid from you. I'll put that in in the newsletter show notes for folks. I've been following Dr. Weil's anti-inflammatory diet for a long time, but I'd love to see how you guys modified it. Yeah, we modified it. Yeah, we just modified it. Um, We have a pediatric version and a handout that has some suggestions that I'm happy to share. That's great. That's great. So like when we think about other things that are critical from the microbiome. I think again, fiber, I think omega-3 fats. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to talk to folks like, I know you put in there a little bit of addition of the sort of the, the uh, Eastern philosophy with Japanese style. I know yep. they have a high predominance of omega-3 fats, which help to downregulate the immune system. The other things I always like to talk about, and I know you guys work on this as well, but tolerance immunologically, like you were saying in the beginning, where the food's sliding through the intestinal tract, we're supposed to be differentiating friend from foe in this little conserved space, that vitamin A, vitamin D, and fiber are these three critical pieces for the development of what I call the T-reg, that great immune police cell. 
And, and the diet that you're saying leads right into that. Vitamin A should be highly available in the anti-inflammatory diet you're talking about. Vitamin D should be there as well, but I think sun exposure is probably the most important thing for vitamin D. But then again, you're loading the fiber. So right out of the gate with that diet, you really are setting the child up for a better outcome immunologically yeah. from a tolerance perspective. So I think that's really important. Are, are there any keystone species? I know we're still stuck in this world of bifidobacter, lactobacillus, yep. probiotics, and they're really not useful, you know, unless you're on an antibiotic. I'm, I'm not convinced probiotics have much value right now. It's out of, uh, you know, being exposed to antibiotics or maybe having a dysentery. But, you know, when we think of keystone species, you know, F. prosnitsi, some of these other ones, and biodiversity, how do you think about that in the context of 2021 now? Like, is there, are we moving towards an understanding of certain species are critical? We'll be adding them back. Where are we going there? And as diet, again, can you key in on it? Are there dietary things that promote these keystone species? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think you're right. I think we, I have sort of totally gone away from using probiotics. I think there's, you know, some data now that probiotics probably, especially the ones that you buy at the store, they probably don't engraft at all and just are traveling through the GI tract and make um, expensive poop. Uh, and so <laughs> I recommend prebiotic and probiotic foods. And again, you know, have have come up with our dietitians with some lists of foods that I think are fairly kid friendly that are, are have prebiotics and probiotics in the food. And so we try to adjust things with the diet. I think diversity is key. Um, you know, I think clearly from a bifidobacteria perspective, I think, um, what's so interesting to me is that breast milk contains these like indigestible glycans that are bifidogenic and like cannot be replicated. Like there's just, there really is no replacement that, you know, doesn't mean there aren't situations where breastfeeding is impossible. Of course there are. And then there are things that we can do to support the microbiome in other ways. But, um, but yeah, I think the, I, I think, and then there's, you know, obviously discussion about, um, sort of this like bacteroidetes Prevotella ratio where Prevotella is more consistent with a um, agrarian diet, like more of a Mediterranean style, high fiber traditional diet and bacteroidetes are more associated with um, Western diets. But I don't think we're yet at a point where we are we're customizing. I know there are some groups that are actually like studying a microbiome um, creating custom probiotics, giving them to patients, sampling the microbiome again. And so I think there are like, there's definitely some interesting work that's being done. Um, but I think we, when you're talking about 10 to the 10th bacteria in the GI tract, and also like not really having any knowledge of whether the probiotics you buy at the store, if the bacteria are dead or alive, or whether that even matters, um, I, I think we're not at a point yet where we are shifting the community in a meaningful way with, um, anything you can buy at the store really other than regular food. Um, 
So that's what I, that's my approach right now. Um, I hope that there will be ways, you know, other than fecal transplant, where we're talking about sort of like defined, adding defined communities of bacteria to the GI tract that actually right. can graft and shift the community. So I think that is the future. Um, but we're talking, we've been talking about that, it seems like for a while now, and we're not, we're not there. Um, so right now it's like fiber, 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 food, 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 healthy food. And, and that's my approach right now. Perfect. And so, you know, when we look at the segue from fiber, 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 which I think is one of the most powerful down regulation, down regulators of inflammatory response, we think about inflammation being this evil thing, but inflammation really isn't. It's the the necessary process the body goes through for healing anything that is dysfunctional. When does inflammation really flip into trouble? Is it is it because we keep pounding the body over and over again with the same insult, like kicking the wall a thousand times, eventually it's inflamed to the point of dysfunction? Or when when do we really think inflammation flips into damage and then we end up with these disease states? You know, from my perspective, I always think again that the diet and, and mental stress are the one-two punch of damage, depending on genetic, you know, underpinnings. But what do you think about that? Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think your point about sort of repeated, repeatedly stressing the immune system um, is an interesting one. And I, and I, you know, I think that that is quite likely to be true in inflammatory bowel disease. We think of um, this sort of like normal inflammatory process that you mentioned um, in a genetically susceptible individual that that's sort of when we get tipped over the edge. Um, but yeah, I mean, but again, like tons of people have, these aren't inflammatory bowel diseases are not, um, it's not a single gene defect. So it's not like what's giving me blue eyes or brown hair. I mean, it's very, these are multigenic. So it's the way that multiple genes are interacting together to make immune system pathways susceptible to not functioning appropriately in the sort of correct environmental state. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's when in IBD, that's when things get out of control, but tons of people have these genes and are perfectly fine. And in addition, like twin, twin concordance in inflammatory bowel diseases in identical twins is like 50%. So um, these are not we have so much control, I guess, is what I am trying to say over these environmental factors. Yeah. And I think dosage and timing, like you were saying earlier, I think makes a huge difference. And um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I've noticed that the younger patients that I see with autoimmune disease, specifically Crohn's, tend to have the worst disease. Um, yeah. and, I, and, and I think that has a lot to do with the likelihood of that the dosage timing of such an early on insult, the immune system really is dysregulated to the point of very damaging responses. So let's segue into, you know, one of the last things I wanted to talk about, which I think, you know, is so omnipresent in our world right now, that's this COVID-19 stuff. Yeah. And I know there were two really interesting articles, Dr. Yo, why. Uh, uh, EOH and, and Dr. Fasano had done some really amazing work looking and finding that in adults, you know, they found dysbiosis or this dysfunctional intestinal microbiome was highly associated with downstream risk of, 
of a bad outcome. And yep. in kids, the multi-inflammatory syndrome was also highly associated with immune dysregulation based on the microbiome. What do you think that's all about? Because clearly, again, just yeah, like I saying, think that I think it's so interesting, and I I think you're right. So there are sort of like a couple of papers that have come out looking at two different areas. So one is that we know that a lot of patients with COVID-19 have GI symptoms, and it's been hypothesized that patients with GI symptoms had a dysbiotic microbiome that led to the, the kinds of barrier dysfunction that we were talking about earlier, and then subsequent colonization of the GI tract with COVID-19 in the tissue. And then there have also been there's also been a paper to linking disease severity to dysbiosis, as you said, with um, decreases in beneficial bacteria. But I think this is hard, and this is something that we struggle with in microbiome research all the time. These are, I think these associations are are important and um, likely they're real, but it's unknown which came first. So we always have this like chicken or the egg question in um, microbiome research in general. And in IBD, we struggle with this also, but do you have an abnormal microbiome, which leads to COVID-19 susceptibility or, um, you know, increased risk for uh, bad outcomes with COVID-19, or do you have severe COVID-19, which leads to a very abnormal microbiome? And so, um, I think sort of to be continued, but I think, and there's also so much work being done on the gut virome. Like we haven't even scratched that surface yeah. of other, other things that are living in our guts. Um, so I think there will be hopefully more to come on this. And I think that right now they are important and very interesting associations. Um, and I think, you know, and I, I think they will likely matter, but I think that the chicken and the egg question is, is still one that needs to be answered. Um, yeah. but it makes sense. I mean, the gut barrier is important. I think, you know, also, um, we know, I, I think that like now is like, there's no better time than now to, to eat a healthy diet and support your microbiome, uh, during a pandemic and, I, I think it's it's quite possible that our healthy diet will protect us from from things for sure. Yeah, and I think that is exactly the way I see the data. I think that the dysbiosis is a part of the problem. It can't be the whole problem because most right. there's such a high proportion of dysbiosis in the United States, everybody would be dead. Um, oh, so I think totally. it's a yeah. I think it's a piece of the pie if you have other immune genetic risk factors. So I think of Dr. Barron's work where they found that in some of these MIS kids, they are missing a suppressor capability for CXCL9, the chemokine involved in in gamma interferons post-virologic immune response. And I think that to me starts to make more sense. There's more pieces of this pie. Once it turns on, the dysbiosis is almost like the gasoline source for the inflammatory response. And then you're missing these down regulators, the Tregs, all these things are not playing out the way they're supposed to. So yep. we see that clinically as multi-inflammatory syndrome or you know, on a ventilator as an adult. But the reality is the only things we can really control 
is what you just said. And I am I get incensed with the media that here we are 18 months into this pandemic and we still not talked about the biggest risk factor for dying, which is your lifestyle choices. It's it's maddening right. to me. We're still focused on vaccination, which is so important. I mean, everybody needs to vaccinate, end of story, right? But in yeah. the absence of that, at least eat healthy, get some sleep, really take care of your body and you'll have a exercise. reasonable chance. Yeah. Exercise, yeah. totally. Yeah. Sun, so, sunshine, yes, for sure. So, so Lindsay, I love everything you're saying. And again, you know, we don't, we didn't know each other before today, which I'll let the, I'll let the, uh, the audience know, but I align completely with your thinking and, and I love how you, your research, I've read a lot of your papers, you do fantastic work. I have this question to ask all of the guests when they're on the show. And I did not at, to let you know this up front because I want it to be extemporaneous and quick off the top of your head. I'll tell you what mine is first. I, okay. If you were able to change one policy at the federal level, right? And you had the opportunity to go to the government and say, hey, we need to change this because this is really hurting society. What would you do? And I said, and I always say, we need to change the farm bill, which changes the access of kids, food in school. We need to basically change what we're putting in our in front of our children in the school lunchroom because we're feeding them predominantly the foods, at least in North Carolina, we're feeding them predominantly the foods that drive all the problems that you've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Like we are literally giving them the poisons that cause the disease. What would you say if you wanted to give me an idea of what your policy change? Would yeah, well, be? I, I mean, I love that one. I think something that I struggle with all the time is um, we use, it's like so fascinating and interesting that we can treat certain patients with Crohn's disease with diet and not with medications, yet we can't get any coverage for formula or for food and insurance companies will pay for expensive biologic medications. But, um, but I think we need to like make dietary therapies more accessible to patients and family. It's like they need to know that they exist and they also need, um, help. Like if you use the money you're spending on expensive biologics and, um, put it towards dietary therapies, like that would be amazing to me. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And it gets into the realities of where the incentives are aligned for. They're unfortunately aligned for treatment, not prevention. And that's yep, unfortunately exactly. a big a big issue in medicine. So, Lindsay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time over the last 45 or so minutes or 50 minutes now. You have been a wealth of knowledge and the parents are going to glean a great amount of data that they can take home for new, what I call news to use in their day-to-day operations. So hopefully they can give their kids the best outcome based on your great knowledge and information. And if if people wanted to follow your research, the easiest way I know is to just go to Google Scholar and type in Lindsay Albenberg and boom, pops up a ton of information. But do you have any other way you like people to reach you? Is there anything you'd want? Do you have a social media page or are you sort of good where you're at? I have a, I have a Twitter that I'm not super active but trying to be better, but it's at um, Linny, L-I-N-N-Y, which is my nickname, Alb, A-L-B. Um, and I also on our CHOP, we have a, our CHOP IBD center. We have a website where we're updating, um, all of our research that we're working on and active clinical trials and things like that. That's awesome. For everybody to know, CHOP is one of the best institutions in the country, Children's Hospital Philadelphia. 
So that is a great place for people to go to get information. And so at that note, uh, thank you again for your time and all of your knowledge and all of your hard work, because I know you do a lot of hard work. So thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Have a great day. Well, there you have it. A fascinating conversation with Dr. Albenberg looking deep into some of the antecedent risk factors for things like Crohn's disease and also colitis, but specifically from the lens of what's preventable, what can we do? I thought it was very interesting that she got into some of the discussions on singular macronutrients, sort of like looking at red meat proteins and finding no major issue, Uh, but then looking more at combinations and finding how combinations can certainly have an effect, you know, processed food with excess saturated fat, with low fiber, uh, with with emulsifiers. That's the place where the rubber seems to be meeting the road, which makes complete sense again, because the number one risk factor for bad outcomes in humans is a standard American highly processed diet. So studies often look at one thing, but we don't ever live with one thing. We live with a whole constellation of things, foods mixed together, stress mixed with foods, chemical exposures mixed with foods, There are so many variables. So I love the way she approached that side of the topic related to Crohn's disease and then discussing the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, foods that cause inflammation in Crohn's, you know, that can be restricted, you know, looking at them and seeing how you feel personally. It works for some, not for all, right? No cow's milk, no gluten. The obvious things that I speak to all the time related to my patient population and where I see the most bang for your buck in, in, in healing things that ail you. No emulsifiers, which essentially should be no processed food. This acts a lot like elemental formulas, which we know work. And then thinking about probiotics in the world of the microbiome and how the intestinal microbiome is you know, being researched at the probiotic level, but there are no good answers yet. And I agree that this is true. And in discussions with Dr. Borowitz and Dr. Fasano and many other researchers, we're still nowhere near the level of understanding of the microbiome, specifically at the level of what microbes being added back into the system could make a difference. We're not there. But probiotics have a place, you know, with antibiotic-associated diarrhea or potentially with viral-associated infections, reestablishing some of the microbes. I can see that. Outside of that, we don't have targeted data for probiotics, and we will, but we don't. For me, the answer is, as she stated, an anti-inflammatory diet for most of us, a Crohn's disease exclusion diet for specific people, maybe even a specific carbohydrate diet. But fiber is the key, diverse fibers. It's a rainforest inside our gut, the microbiome should be. So we want diverse species, so we want to feed diverse upstream foods, breast milk from the beginning with all of its 220 plus oligosaccharides from the milk, right? And then feeding all kinds of different fibers as vegetables and fruits and beans and nuts and seeds throughout the child's early years of existence. This is, to me, the answer to human health, right? And we've talked about before, avoid chemicals that can mess up the microbiome like emulsifiers, like pesticides, I don't know if we'll ever have definitive data that each one in and of themselves is obviously a main downstream problem, but in combination, they likely are. I can't see a single reason in my mind why we would want to put foreign chemicals into a system 
that offer no significant benefit to health. They only offer significant benefit to the companies that are making the foods that we like to consume. That's not a good answer, folks, especially with disease burdens increasing year over year. We're not seeing any slowdown in this nightmare. So therefore, we need to make antecedent upstream change to help people improve or better yet, prevent disease in the first place, which has been my goal with the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter and this podcast. So with that, I hope you really enjoy Dr. Albenberg. I think she is an excellent speaker and an excellent researcher, which really was the goal behind sharing her vast knowledge from a great institution at CHOP in Philadelphia. So when you get a chance, go to Google and put in Crohn's Disease Exclusion Diet Dr. Albenberg, spelled A-L-B-E-N-B-E-R-G, and go down to, it looks like it's the third um, website, and it says HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash Crohn's and colitis dot CA, and then there's a little um, forward arrow chevron meeting of the minds, and there's a PDF. Click that, and in that... Um, website, you will find on the 5th, 6th, 13th page, it looks like roughly, there is a pediatric anti-inflammatory diet pyramid that you can look at to get an idea of what foods we should be eating as kids, right? So if you look at the base, the bottom, a large proportion of water, four to five colorful vegetables every day and three to four colorful fruits every day. Whole cracked grains, you know, is roughly three to five a day. And again, if you're sensitive to gluten, that gets pulled out. And then beans and legumes can be up to once or twice a day. Healthy fats daily, especially extra virgin olive oil, nuts as uh, walnuts and different kinds of high quality nuts, avocados, seeds, in, including freshly ground seeds like flax or, or chia. And then some whole high quality organic soy foods are in there. She also has in her pyramid uh, dairy and other sorts of protein. Again, dairy would be pulled out if you have specific issues. And then, uh, you know, fish and seafood, teas, healthy herbs and spices, healthy sweets, right? So, you know, a, a good high quality diet is critical. If you have Crohn's disease, you pull out very specific foods that are potentially problematical. And then you go to another level of your, uh, what I call lifestyle diet interventions, right? And so therefore, you know, start looking at some of this stuff. I have links to this in um, the Salisbury PDF Associate newsletter that will be coming up. But as always, you know, you can search Dr. Albenberg's information on Google, like we just discussed, go to her Twitter page and really just sort of follow the science because um, it is evolving and it will continue to evolve and we will change our decision-making regarding treatment indications and, and, and treatment decisions based on this knowledge moving forward. What is today may not be tomorrow. So with that, have a great day. Thank you as always for listening. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple uh, um, Podcasts and, and review it and rate it. That helps me understand if I'm on the right track or not on the right track. Uh, that is something that would make me very happy. Uh, as well, you know, for me, I do this for free. It's fun, uh, but it, it's always nice to know that I'm on the right track. So as always, hug those kids. Appreciate your time. 
Give lots of love out in the world, and we'll talk another time. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. This podcast and all the information within it is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of any kind of provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.